Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Go. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your host, Peter Go. Excited to be back. It's it's been a while. It's been too long. I am happy to be back and a great day to be back as well. Of course, as many of you know, uh, we are recording this here Sunday night. Brewers, officially your 2021 NL Central champions. Certainly wasn't any doubt at this point in the season whether the Brewers were going to hold on to that title, but nonetheless exciting. All sorts of uh, Brent Suter dancing videos all over Twitter that uh, David and, and Caleb were sharing to me. But a great day to be a Brewers fan, David. Uh, what are your thoughts here as we open today's podcast? Of course, exciting. That'd be the first word that would that would uh, come to mind to describe it. Also, in some ways, a formality, because we knew for a long time that the Brewers were going to win this division. And while the Cardinals kind of made this late push, I mean, are still making this late push uh, to really make some noise in the postseason, they never really were going to come close to the division. I think in the second half, I mean, the closest that anyone got to the Brewers at the top of the division was maybe the Reds at about six and a half, seven games. So it's, it's been quite the distance that the Brewers have had on the rest of the NL Central for the kind of the entirety of the second half. Uh, so that'd be kind of the word I'd use as a formality, but still exciting. Yeah, and we didn't see the, uh, the August collapse that uh, Brewers fans will remember from not too far long ago. Would have had to really been a monumental collapse for the Brewers this year. But like you said, nonetheless, a formality, but still exciting. Anytime you take care of, you know, the division and as the Brewers, just the fourth time they've been able to do that in their franchise history as well. Very exciting. So today's trivia question, a little bit different than typical, uh, maybe a little bit more discussional, but Giovanni Gallardo, Carlos Gomez, and Francisco Rodriguez, or K-Rod, all being added to the wall of honor recently. Just wanted to bring up Francisco Rodriguez, K-Rod, I know you were joking about him not being able to make it to the Brewers' wall of honor uh, due to visa issues, which I know he always ran into during spring training and the starts of the season. But it got me thinking, with the Brewers, uh, you know, bullpen over the years, of course, Dan Plezak, Josh Hader, even now, even Devin Williams, Corey Knable, Jeremy Jeffress, a lot of great arms that we've seen in the bullpen recently. But just wondering where you would put K-Rod in the list of, you know, maybe top five Brewers relievers among Plezak, Hader, and Fingers. Yeah, I definitely think those three would have to be the ones at the top of that list. But K-Rod's not too far behind. I couldn't exactly say, like, where is he compared to, say, Ken Sanders pitching in the early 70s, uh, who had a pretty good Brewers career uh, run with the Brewers. Uh, but I, I do think that he is probably in that top five. Jeremy Jeffress pushing up in that list. Corey Knable. Uh, Devin Williams could be at there, up there at some point. But I think K-Rod went under the radar in large part. 2011, uh, you think about the impact he had on the team. And usually Axford gets the credit. Axford had the, the 43, I think it was, uh, straight saves during the regular season. Uh, Axford also blew the save against Arizona, setting up Niger Morgan's uh, walk-off hit. But K-Rod was the one who was maybe as steady as Axford throughout the year as that setup man once they acquired him from the Mets midseason. So I think he went under the radar that year. And then Axford ended up kind of fading fast uh, before his comeback this year. But 
but K-Rod kind of remained pretty steady and he came back to the Brewers seemingly every March 15th or something like that when he didn't have a contract for the upcoming year. Uh, quick sign a contract, get the visa done maybe three weeks late, step on a cactus in spring training, and then show up to the team mid-April <laughs> uh, was usually the timeline for K-Rod, but he had a nice career with the Brewers uh, over a few years, and he is actually third all-time in saves um, in, in all of baseball, I think it is, uh, or maybe fourth, I think, behind Lee Smith. Uh, so I don't think that he will make the Hall of Fame, but it certainly would be an interesting case because now those three top uh, saves leaders are ahead of him. And I think his, his impact went under the radar in Milwaukee. Yeah, I certainly agree that it went under the radar. And as far as whether he sits in the top five, I think we can all agree that please act fingers and hater are top three in, in some order, perhaps that order even. Um, and I think K-Rod deserves to be there. John Axford, like you said, just taking a look here at reading, reading through an article in preparation for today's podcast. And perhaps you already know the story, but John Axford in 2008, after he was released by the Yankees station indoor tryout in Ontario, of course, Axford from Canada, and there was a big snow, snowstorm the day of the tryout or the um, the uh, staging for Axford to be seen by scouts. And so as a result, only one scout ended up showing up, which of course was from the Brewers. Certainly paid off, obviously, for the Brewers. A, a story I don't recall hearing, perhaps I did during his time, but a unique, you know, once again, baseball story from John Axford. And, and like you said, K-Rod did fly under the radar and probably is top five, top six Brewers relief ace as well. So K-Rod among Giovanni Gallardo and Carlos Gomez, some fun players. And certainly for the two of us, I, I know we're in our, you know, right as we were f following the Brewers growing up, getting to see those play those players play. Uh, even Gomez, I got a chance to stand next to on the field. Any thoughts that you have uh, or anecdotes from Gomez's or Gallardo's time with the Brewers? Gallardo, I think, similarly to K-Rod, flew under the radar to some degree because he was arguably the most steadily good starting pitcher the Brewers have had, maybe in franchise history, but uh, at least since the days of Teddy Higuera back in, uh, in the 80s, he didn't quite have the strikeout numbers of a guy like Ben Sheets. And I think that's partly why he ended up in large part being a little bit underappreciated. Uh, but he, over the course of seven, eight years with the Brewers, uh, compiled, it seemed like a 200 strikeout season every year, almost 200 innings. Uh, he would throw like 120 pitches in like five and a half innings. Um, but he, he overall did a very good job with the Brewers and is kind of like K-Rod, we were saying, probably a, a top five pitcher in Brewers franchise history, right up there with Ben Sheets and with Teddy Higuera, maybe just slotting in behind them. So I think Gallardo goes kind of under the radar like K-Rod. Uh, but Carlos Gomez, I mean, I guess that's kind of the theme for today. Uh, but he also largely flew under the radar. You look at the the top 10 leaders or the, the leaders for position players for war single season in Brewers history, Carlos Gomez third, according to baseball reference, uh, behind Yount and Braun's MVP season and ahead of Yelich's MVP season. That was the year he won a gold glove back in 2013. He was a dynamic player on some teams that were not as good, kind of the post-2011 era where he was more of a role player there. Uh, but he was he kind of held the team, him and Lucroy. Uh, the two the two stars, I would say, of the team, 
Uh, they just didn't really have much around them, some aging veterans and not enough pitching depth uh, to really hold them together. Uh, but Gomez is certainly a fan favorite in Milwaukee. I always love Gomez. I like Gallardo too. Great to have them back at the ballpark and celebrate their great Brewers 10 years. Yeah, certainly core players in the Brewers, you know, 2010s, like you said, Gallardo and Gomez especially. Fun players to watch. And, you know, Gallardo had a streak there as well of, you know, opening day starts. He was really, I know he wasn't quite an ace, if you think about it, on the major league standards. But really, he was the Brewers ace for many years. And a, a steady, you know, consistent starting pitcher that uh, the Brewers were able to have all those years. So a uh, little bit of a long trivia question, but I think it was well worth it for those three players, again, being inducted into the Brewers' wall of honor. So before we get further into today's podcast, David, who is today's random player of the day? Yeah, today's random player of the day, Seth McClung, uh, a guy who pitched for the Brewers back in the late 2000s, kind of a swing man and a very familiar face on Brewers Twitter. He's pretty active, interacts with Brewers fans a fair amount. But 13 years ago to the day, as we record this, uh, he had a, a very nice relief outing, probably his best outing of the year, when facing the Cubs, came into the in the sixth inning uh, in a one-all game. Very important games because the Brewers uh, needed to win them to stay in the wild card race. And McClung fired four innings of scoreless relief, allowed just one hit, one walk, struck out six, and really helped the Brewers win that game. Uh, the Brewers were able to score, scratch one run across in the sixth, and then scored three in the seventh uh, to make it a 5-1 game, which was ultimately the final score. But Seth McClung, kind of the hero of the game, uh, they were a little bit taxed in the bullpen because they've been fighting so hard for that playoff spot. And McClung came up big in that game. Uh, he did pitch a few years with the Brewers, not just that one game like I made it sound. Uh, but he had a, a 3.75 ERA in 07 across 12 innings. His best year came probably in 08 when he had a 4.02 ERA, 12 starts, uh, 25 relief appearances, 105 innings. Uh, over the course of his Brewers career, though, 4.32 ERA, uh, he's always a, a flamethrower and was, I would say, a pretty nice swing man uh, the Brewers had for a few years. Um, back in those late 2000s, ended up finishing his career in 2013, played in Taiwan, actually, uh, at the end of his career after a stint in Mexico. So baseball taking him kind of around the globe uh, before settling back in the United States, where I think he, he coaches baseball in Florida now, uh, because I, I, I am an active Seth McClung Twitter follower. Uh, so I have interacted with him a little bit before, and he's a great follow on Twitter. Uh, but another guy who kind of goes under the radar, uh, not as good as, as Gallardo or, or Gomez or K-Rod as, as far as his playing career, uh, but a nice former random brewer. Certainly a, couldn't put it better, a, a nice former random brewer, Seth McClung. Uh, kind of an interesting mix of a of a flamethrower, but also a swingman. Typically, you know, I think of a swingman, you even mentioned Marco Estrada uh, last episode, but a lot of times the swingman, you know, Brent Suter type, you know, not necessarily throwing hard, you know, just decent pitchers who hit their spots, don't have plus-plus stuff or velo. Kind of an interesting mix of a hard thrower, swingman, perhaps. Maybe that's not as rare as I think, but um, nonetheless, interesting. One thing I, I did notice, actually, I was watching some highlights from the game. Uh, he had a, a four-seam fastball he threw a lot, but it seemed like he threw it down in the zone a lot, which is opposite of what is typically done now at the major league level. Back even 
13 years ago, a lot of pitching coaches were preaching down in the zone, down in the zone, down in the zone. And of course that can be good sometimes, even with a four seam fastball uh, now, traditionally or not traditionally, but, but now in the modern game, it's usually sinkers or two seamers down and four seamers up uh, McClung, McClung threw that four-seamer down. Maybe he would have been more effective um, throwing a, that fastball up, breaking ball down, kind of like the the modern pitchers do now. Uh, we see that kind of with uh, with Brandon Woodruff, I would say. Um, a prime example of that, although 15 years ago, was Ben Sheets, actually. A high-spin fastball was up in the zone. And then uh, that big bender, um, one of the best curveballs I've ever seen. Um, but, a wipeout uh, curve. Just, yeah, just kind of a thought about maybe McClung. I mean, I'm sure the, the Brewers pitching coaches at the time knew what they were doing. Um, I don't even know. Oh, uh, what was his name? Mike Maddox. That's right. Who's right. the Cardinals pitching coach now um, at the time was the Brewers pitching coach. Um, but we move on to talking about Mike Maddox's current team, the St. Louis Cardinals, winners of 16 straight, including four against the Brewers. The Brewers are actually heading out to St. Louis on Tuesday as well to face the Cardinals for three more. So the Brewers are going to be able to end the Cardinals losing streak, we hope, or excuse me, winning streak, uh, we hope, at, at 16. Uh, of course, these games aren't, aren't very consequential. Uh, Brewers pretty much have the, the two seed locked up already in the National League. But you still want to get off on, on a good footing going into the postseason and build confidence beating right now, I would say, the best team in baseball. Um, now, of course, they're not on paper or talent-wise but they're playing like the best team in baseball. Uh, they've run off, I think, the longest winning streak in September in the live ball era, or if not in the live ball era, in a, a very long time. And the longest winning streak in Cardinals franchise history, breaking all kinds of records with the winning streak. Uh, should we be worried about the Cardinals right now? What are your initial thoughts on that, Peter? I know I, I addressed that last year, or last, excuse me, last week uh, in the episode, but... I feel like it's kind of a different question now. That was after just the first game, which was a bad game, but uh, it's a lot different now. The Brewers got swept by the Cardinals. The Cardinals went out to Wrigley and won four straight, uh, sweeping the Cubs. Should we, do you think we should be, should we be worried about the Cardinals now? Great question. And I think it's a, comes down to a question of momentum versus, like you said, better team on paper, talent, depth, all of those things. Not to, not to discount the Cardinals completely, uh, still a solid team. Clearly, when you compare them to some of the other opponents the Brewers may be facing in the National League, of course, Dodgers and the Giants doesn't stack up whatsoever uh, talent-wise. But I think momentum, and like you said, they are the Cardinals. They've had a, a bit of a history of doing this, getting hot in September, getting hot at the right time. And, of course, people always talk about, you know, it's not a, the, the best team doesn't win the World Series necessarily. And could we see uh, something like this happen this year? Certainly possible. You know that they've got to go through a wild card. So any team that has to go through the wild card game, of course, anything can happen. I I'm excited to see the wild card game. I think that will be an excellent game. Uh, Giants currently have holding on to a two-game lead against the Dodgers. 102 wins already for the Giants. And the Dodgers trailing in the division with 100 wins. Of course, the possibility that one of those teams wins over 100 game games and is then eliminated for the fan base and perhaps will bring question to the one game playoff, which I think baseball fans have all more or less come to love. Uh, so to, to answer your question, I think it's a, a question of, you know, how much does momentum matter both at the 
end of the regular season as well as the playoffs. Overall, I would still prefer to play the Cardinals than the Dodgers. I think that's a given. And I think I'd still rather play the Cardinals than the Giants, given the talent level. Uh, and when it comes down to it and the Brewers need to get a W, I'm a lot more confident than you know, four games that were didn't have as much riding on it. What are your thoughts on that? Generally, I would agree with you. Uh, I mean, if if the Brewers do face the Cardinals, it's going to be in the NLCS. So they would have had to eliminate um, both the Giants and the Dodgers. So I feel like we should be more applauding them for the favor that they potentially had done for the Brewers. The only thing is 2011 Phillies uh, is, well, of course, what we take, what we bring it back to. The Cardinals uh, got red hot in September, took that one wild card spot from the Braves at the time there were there was only one wild card and the Cardinals ended up beating the Phillies in five games we thought that they were kind of doing the Brewers a service but then they ended up taking the series from the Brewers in six games in the NLCS of course 82 the Cardinals beat the Brewers in the playoffs too so a little bit of a I don't know if I, I want to say like deja vu kind of PTSD almost for Brewers fans thinking about the Cardinals uh, and their devil magic, which is a phrase that's been going around, because it seems like every September they just always they always play well, uh, no matter who is on the team. Um, I mean, it could be like we're seeing right now: John Lester throwing 86 mile an hour cutters, and Jay Happ, who got traded to the Cardinals with I think like a six ERA, um, and they're helping lead the rotation uh, towards the six, 16 game win streak. Um, but I, I would say we should be at least to some degree concerned. Now, I still think the Brewers are a considerably better team than the Cardinals. But I would say the Cardinals look much more concerning than for most of the season when we thought it would be Cincinnati in, in the second wild card spot, um, maybe a fading San Diego, uh, who now is sitting at 500 um, and has been eliminated. Uh, but I would say there is still some concern because in a short series, you never know. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it, it would be still the NLCS that we, we would be facing the Cardinals. And I feel pretty confident in the matchups of, you know, Corbin Burns against uh, John Lester or uh, Freddie Peralta against Guang Hyung Kim. So um, I, I, that's kind of where I would stand is, is some level of concern, uh, but not huge concern. Uh, but the Brewers weren't able to take care of the Cardinals this past week. Uh, and that's kind of why we ha are having to have this conversation. Uh, rough series. I mean, uh, they, they were clearly outplayed throughout the series, um, especially that Thursday game where they were up 5-1 uh, and then ended up blowing it, uh, partly because of defense, uh, but also not great pitching. Um, on the, in the Monday game, uh, the Brewers let them uh, – take the lead I think it was 3-2 and then the Cardinals I thought did an excellent job of um, getting a runner on get the runner over uh, hit a sack fly that kind of thing and that kind of killed the Brewers almost when they tacked on a couple insurance runs but the Mets came to the Brewers rescue so Brewers fans didn't have to panic for too long uh, because Brewer fans were panicking a little bit I would say uh, at, at the uh, the four game series loss against the Cardinals Brewers ended up sweeping the Mets at home this week. Uh, big weekend in Milwaukee. A lot of things going on for the Brewers. We talked about the Wall of Honor induction. Big Bob Euchre celebration night, um, which so far he hasn't said that he's going to retire. Um, but I would kind of guess that possibly if the Brewers win the World Series, he'll retire. Something along those lines. He is 87 years old already. And then the big Ryan Braun retirement ceremony. 
on Sunday, Fan Appreciation Day, and of course the Brewers clinching uh, with some help to uh, or from the Mets. Uh, the Jonathan VR play at third, uh, an old friend of the Brewers who clearly has not improved his defense, unfortunately. Um, now he, he is better suited at third base than center field, I would say. Uh, but ground ball to third base, Eric Lauer, who had pinch run for Dan Vogelbach standing at third base uh, and should have been an easy out at home. Lauer took off for home. VR looks home, pump fakes, hesitates, and then throws to first, makes a bad throw. Throw goes uh, past Alonzo at first. Lauer scores. I think another run scores. Inning would have been over. Then Lindor gets the opportunity to make another error to run score. And ends up being 8-4 instead of what likely would have been either, I think, 4-all or 5-4. Uh, so the Brewers were able to capitalize on those errors from the Mets um, and were able to clinch the division at home, which was exciting for fans uh, to see the Brewers clinch the division on Sunday. Yeah, I think to wrap up sort of the conversation around the Cardinals and the hot streak they've been on, I do think that this upcoming series against them is important simply just from a confidence standpoint, you know, in addition to, of course, the goal of, of trying to beat that 96 win mark to be the best team in Brewers history in the regular season. But I think there is something to be said, you know, all of a sudden, let's just say hypothetically, Brewers managed to get swept in the three game set against Cardinals. And now you're going in and if in the off chance you do end up playing the Cardinals in the playoffs, it's in the back of your head that you're oh for the last seven games you've played against them. And regardless of, you know, playoff Woodruff, playoff Burns, you know, trying to flip a switch in the playoffs, it's still in the back of your head that, A, you've lost the last seven against Cardinals. And the Cardinals know, well, you know, very well coming into the series that, hey, we've beat this team seven times in a row. Let's not, you know, why not make it four more? So I think that I would be focusing on making sure the Brewers at least win one, but hopefully two of the next three against the Cardinals, just to gain some confidence, get their footing back, and get into the playoffs, not only well-rested, you know, starting rotation position the way they want to, but also with some confidence in themselves, hopefully winning a couple games against the Cardinals and a couple of game, games against the Dodgers in games that are still very much important for both the Cardinals and the Dodgers. So, uh, anyways, let's move on to our second topic of the day here. Brewers, of course, clinching the NL Central uh, we'll be facing likely uh, the Atlanta Braves in the playoffs still to be seen, whether that'll be Atlanta or Philadelphia. But my question for you, David, is who's starting game one for you? Is it Corbin Burns, who's arguably had one of the best years uh, in, that we've seen in baseball, if you take a look at some of the other stats, including FIP? Uh, or is it Brandon Woodruff, who's you know been the Brewers' ace, of course got the start in opening day, and has had a tremendous year himself? For a long time, I would have said Woodruff. I think probably even up until around the start of this month. But the way Burns has continued his success, and it's not like Woodruff has faded quickly by any means. Uh, Woodruff got off to a better start than Burns did, I would say. Uh, Burns also dealt with the COVID issue early in the year. But I think going in, uh, Woodruff was still seen as the ace of the staff and the innings eater, uh, the one who was maybe a little bit more dependable. Burns, you didn't know if... Maybe he might just allow a bunch of singles, which may or may not have been his fault because they're usually average exit velocity of 47 miles an hour and we're dribblers to the second baseman. Um, like what we, we like to call getting babipped, um, the uh, official verb tense of batting average on balls in play um, and, and kind of him being unlucky. Uh, but I would say at this point, the way Burns has pitched, 
you have to give it to Corbin Burns, uh, especially in the NLDS where you know that the, the, the guy who starts game one is going to be lined up for a potential game five. The guy who starts game two isn't going to get another start. So with that in mind, I think you have to start the better guy. And at this point, I would say that is Corbin Burns. And putting Burns in that in that game one start against probably Atlanta, uh, I think makes more sense for the Brewers to try to maximize their chances of advancing past the NLDS. Yeah, I think first off, I'll say I don't think you can make a wrong decision. I, certainly, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty vision. So if for some reason something's go terribly wrong and the Brewers lose in the NLDS, and whether they go with Woodruff or Burns in game one, you, you could go back and say Council made the wrong decision. But I think at the end of the day, Burns, Woodruff, both obviously outstanding pitchers, many teams would be happy to have either guy start game one. So at, first off, I think I would say that there's not a huge difference. I think that certainly it's worth a conversation and it is, it does matter who the Brewers decide. Like you said, it's a big difference between that game one start and game two start primarily because that game one starter could be lined up for a potential game five if necessary, which means a lot. So um, certainly hear you there. I think Brandon Woodruff may be worth considering given that he has been the ace, the go-to opening day starter. I think if you think of traditionally uh, starting pitchers, I see Woodruff more as the quote-unquote ace. I can see the argument for Burns being the better pitcher this year, but I also know that Woodruff has been the guy and is a little bit more of a traditional pitcher, fastball, curveball as well. Uh, we were talking beforehand about the additional mile per hour two that pitchers can oftentimes get in the playoffs. We, I mean, even we see it from Josh Hader once in a while, but I, I could see Brandon Woodruff adding on another mile an hour or two when you really get amped up and the adrenaline going in the playoffs. So maybe you see a little bit more juice out of Woodruff's fastball. I know he's a little bit more of a straight fastball kind of guy, um, whereas Burns, of course, has the sinker slider movement on his pitches where the velocity may or may not be as beneficial. And maybe we're also just splitting hairs at this point. And Woodruff, Burns, Brewers have a good chance of winning either way. But I th like I said, uh, I think Brewers are going to be positioned well either way. I guess I'll, I'll turn the question slightly on its head and say, who do you think the Brewers will select? Who do you think Council will go with to start game one in the NLDS? I do think he will go with Burns. I think it's a tough call because every time they've needed a win, they've gone to Woodruff. I thought of opening day, which it's not like they need the opening day win, but getting that opening day nod is still symbolic of you have the staff, you are the ace of the staff. And Woodruff did get the opening day nod this year. Woodruff started in the wild card game back in 2019. Uh, when they needed a starter in the NLCS back in game five of 2018, uh, they went with Woodruff to start, who had been good in relief, not Burns. Now, that was a few years ago. Uh, but even, yeah, even to this point, I think when they rearranged uh, the starters after the all-star break, I believe they had Woodruff going in, in front of Burns. So generally, he set it up that way. But Burns also, I would say, has surpassed Woodruff as far as his production and his talent uh, in the second half of this year. And I would believe that if you get beat with Woodruff, now, of course, Woodruff's an excellent pitcher still, but it's kind of, you bring up that case, why didn't you let yourself get beat by the guy who has been your best starter this year, which has probably been Corbin Burns. Yeah, like you said, Woodruff has been, the guy, the leader of the staff. And it's also hard to say, hey, you know, Woodruff, you know, 
I know you pitched well this year. Um, of course, uh, it's been a tremendous year, you know, over 10 and a half strikeouts per nine ERA around 2.5 for Woodruff. He's also thrown more innings, 175 innings so far, a, a losing record for Woodruff, I will mention, um, but a great, great year from Woodruff. So it's also difficult to say, hey, you were our guy going into the year. You put up an all-star caliber top 10 franchise season as a starting pitcher, and we're going to go with somebody else to start game one. I, I certainly agree. It has to be a tough conversation for, for council and a tough decision for the Brewer staff to make. And regardless of who they go to, I think it will be a tough decision um, and a tough, perhaps tough pill to swallow for Burns and Woodruff, who of course want to have the ball in game one, uh, but also want to give the Brewers the best chance uh, to win the NLDS and the rest of the playoffs going forward. Although I, w- I would say that Suter does have 12 wins on the year. Uh, so potentially maybe you got to get Suter in there uh, ahead of probably Woodruff because Woodruff just doesn't have that winner's mentality, clearly <laughs> being only 9-10 well, this year. Well, but right, yeah, and you're supposed to go righty-lefty, righty-lefty. So true. there you have it. Burns game one, Suter game two, Woodruff game three, Lauer game four, and then we can go back to Burns. So th- there we have it. We've got to figure it out. Righty-lefty, righty-lefty, righty. And, uh, and w- of course, yeah, wins. He's a, he's a winner. We want winners mm-hmm. to go out there. And pitch, so you you got it, Brent Suter, game two, he'll he'd be fine with that, and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. So, well, I mean, I say that kind of, I I say that kind of jokingly, but ironically, Brent Suter started game two of the first playoff series last year, uh, because Woodruff pitched game one, pitched pretty well until he, I think he didn't get a call his way, and then there was an error or something like that, and then uh, the floodgates kind of opened, and the Brewers couldn't let anything go against them because uh, their lineup that day, I, I was just looking at their lineup that day. This was last year. They had, um, I think in the, in game two, they had Ryan Healy, not Jacob Nottingham, uh, Luis Urias, who was bad last year, Eric Sogard, Orlando Arcia. They were all in the lineup. Uh, like that is a terrible lineup. Uh, right. So- 2020 Christian Yelich as well. So you don't have uh-huh. the MVP bad either. So yeah, that was, pretty bad it's kind of amazing to think about what kind of a team the brewers are now compared to what they were then where like we were saying we were were splitting hairs about whether burns or woodruff should get the ball in game one burns was hurt last year at that point Uh, woodruff was of course very good and he was a good game one starter but the brewers didn't have any more starting pitchers to go in game two really so they had to start a reliever in uh, in, excuse me brent Suter, and that didn't go very well but kind of related to this topic uh, we're talking about Burns or Woodruff. And Woodruff, I would say in a general or in a normal year, uh, is a Cy Young candidate in his own right. Even put Woodruff in the American League and Woodruff might win the Cy Young this year. Uh, but unfortunately, he's not really in that conversation this year. A few NL pitchers who are having outstanding years, uh, ones that are really outside of the norm, even for the best. Uh, and one of those guys is Corbin Burns, uh, who we've been talking about. Doesn't quite have the volume that Woodruff has, but he has been maybe the best pitcher in all of baseball this year. Um, and does Corbin Burns deserve to win the Cy Young? Uh, that's a question that we've been asking over the last couple of weeks, I would say. Uh, we haven't really addressed it on this podcast. So we're going to talk about now, does Corbin Burns deserve to win the Cy Young? Some of the other candidates just wanted to go through them um, briefly. I would say the main candidate 
uh, that would prevent Burns from winning the Cy Young would be Max Scherzer of the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers and Washington Nationals. Max Scherzer this year, 15-4, and four, so that, that might win it for him altogether. Uh, but he has a 2-2-8 ERA, 174 innings, which is nine more than Burns. Scherzer actually um, could get two starts uh, left in the last week. Burns will only get one. Uh, Scherzer, not quite as many strikeouts per nine innings as Burns. Uh, and the, but the big difference is the home runs, actually. Uh, so Scherzer has not allowed very many balls that have been in play to allow or to become hits. Now, whether or not that's Scherzer's doing, because uh, not like Burns has allowed a lot of hard hits into play, uh, but Burns has not benefited from uh, those balls being turned into outs. But Burns has limited home runs really well. Uh, the Burns has allowed, I think, about three times fewer home runs than Max Scherzer. Uh, so that's one of the candidates, Max Scherzer. Zach Wheeler also, who's thrown 40 more innings than Corbin Burns, certainly a consideration. Uh, the, the, the rate stats are not quite there. ERA about a half run over Corbin Burns. Uh, the strikeouts, the walks, and the home runs per nine innings, all worse than Corbin Burns, but he does have more of the volume. Uh, Walker Bueller, kind of that middleman, uh, has an ERA that's 2.58, sitting kind of halfway between Burns and Wheeler, but he's thrown 195 innings, 30 more than Burns, 11 fewer than Wheeler, but fewer strikeouts, more walks, similar home runs to Wheeler, uh, which is considerably more than Corbin Burns. So those are a few of the candidates just to kind of set the stage uh, as we have this debate. Uh, what are your initial thoughts, Peter, um, on the other few candidates? Uh, we talked about specifically Scherzer, Wheeler, uh, and Bueller compared to Burns. Do you think Corbin Burns is more deserving of the Cy Young than these, uh, than these three yeah, I think you summarized that very well, the pros and cons of each of those guys. And there's certainly been talks around both, you know, reporters and those that actually have a vote and those that are just fans, players, or, or just people who enjoy the game and wanted to share their opinion on who they felt were was the most deserving player for the Cy Young. I think Corbin Burns should certainly be a finalist, and I think he should be top three. I think it's a question of, again, what do you value, volume, or again, the strikeouts per nine and those sorts of things. The biggest, the biggest thing you brought up that I think was noteworthy between Scherzer and Burns was the batting average on balls in play, um, which I know was a considerable difference. Uh, Max Scherzer with a 237 batting average on balls in play. So again, just meaning that when one players did hit the ball in play, they were very. Uh, it was more. Excuse me. It was less likely for them to get a hit. For that ball to drop versus Corbin Burns, a 308 batting on batting average on balls in play, excuse me. And so we saw Corbin Burns run into a lot of bad luck, jam shot, broken bat singles. Again, do you can, can you control how hard someone hits the ball? Yes. Uh, do I think that Burns did a worse job than Scherzer did? Not necessarily. I think that Corbin Burns had an outstanding year. And I think a lot of times made great pitches off the end of the bat, jam shots, ground ball trickled through, and a couple of those, you know, combined and gave a couple of runs. And like you said, um, Corbin Burns arguably had one of the better years that we've seen in baseball when you look at FIP, uh, which I believe just at this point, he's behind Pedro Martinez's iconic year in 1999, uh, which is a big reason because of that, because Babip is, is calculated in that. And, you know, if, 
Burns were to get, let's say, more lucky this year, maybe we see Corbin Burns win the Cy Young. Maybe you see a sub two ERA, um, all those things. You could you, the 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 um, more outward facing stats um, could even be better to the point where you start getting some additional votes and maybe Corbin Burns does win a Cy Young. So I think that batting average on balls in play would be the biggest stat I'd be looking at because, like you said, I think Scherzer is the the front runner at this point, and that may have been the difference between Corbin Burns not only winning the Cy Young but also having a case for a top three, top five single season by a pitcher in the last 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah, kind of when you look at some of Corbin Burns' numbers, uh, look at the 12 and a half Ks per nine, which is, I think, first or second in all of baseball. Uh, You see the 1.8 walks per nine, which is outstanding. The 0.33 home runs per nine, which is actually maybe the number that stands out to me the most, especially in the modern era where the home run is so prevalent pitching in a overall a pretty home run friendly ballpark in Milwaukee. Uh, but yeah, he, he has not benefited from uh, the, the, the luck I would say that Scherzer had now, of course I haven't watched many of Scherzer starts. I've seen maybe two of them all year and I have seen Burns pitch quite often and it does seem like every other game he has an inning where bloop single jam shot broken bat to short beats out the the throw bunt single and they just seem to string these together uh, so I would say that on on Burns that he has not benefited from the luck uh, that maybe Scherzer has and I would say when you look at some of the things like Corbin Burns has allowed uh, many of his hits are below like 80 miles an hour 75 miles an hour and once he throws that pitch especially after the hitter has hit it in play it's out of his control um, it's no longer something that Burns is controlling. And I think it's difficult to penalize him for that. Uh, now, the innings is certainly a pretty big discrepancy compared to, say, Wheeler or even Bueller. But I think Burns' numbers overall pretty far outweigh the numbers of Wheeler and Bueller, where I don't think they should be as serious candidates with Burns because of the sheer dominance of Corbin Burns' work which I think kind of narrows it down to Burns and Scherzer. Now, there's still probably two more starts for Scherzer, including one against the Brewers, who um, could help determine the fate of the Corbin-Burns Cy Young movement for 2021. But And Burns only has one, and that's going to help, uh, help, I would say, help the writers figure out who is going to win uh, the Cy Young. Ultimately, I think that it should go to Burns, at least at this point. I know he would have fewer innings than any starting pitcher has ever pitched in a season. But the Cy Young's been given to relievers before who have thrown far fewer innings than this. I would say that Burns deserves it. Burns is having an all-time great season. And I think because of the ERA and because of the the high batting average on balls in play, we're just not recognizing it around the league as much. Uh, His numbers are kind of suited, I would say, for uh, fielding independent pitching, which is a, a pretty popular stat, but definitely nowhere near the prevalence of ERA, which... I do believe ERA matters, but Burns and Scherzer's ERAs are similar. Every other number except for innings pretty much backs up the Corbin Burns case. Uh, I would have to give it to Burns. Of course, I am biased, but uh, I do know some other writers, Eno Saris of The Athletic, Keith Law also of The Athletic. Both of them said that if they had a vote, they would give it to Burns. Uh, Definitely not alone in the Corbin Burns for Cy Young camp. And we will have to wait a little bit to see whether or not I am correct or 
that I am um, that I am on the same page as the writers who we never really know how they'll vote, but I do think that Corbin Burns is deserving and that he will win the Cy Young this year, uh, which uh, maybe a little bit of a, a gamble of a, a prediction, but Burns deserves it. Yeah, I think you you summed it up well, and I do think that Scherzer's last two starts and Burns' last start will ultimately make the make the the determination. I think if we see two good starts, two Scherzer esque starts from him, I think it's likely, in my opinion, that Scherzer holds on and and does become the National League Cy Young for the year. I think if Burns has a good solid last start and we see maybe two just okay or a shaky start from Scherzer, which I know has been few and far between, then I think Burns has it. But I, I think it's a neck and neck race. I think that at this point, I think it's more likely that Scherzer wins it simply for some of the things that we talked about. Um, I don't know that all the writers or enough writers, I should say, will care about the difference in BAPIP and how to value that. So we'll see. Certainly uh, it will be interesting. Would be a pretty cool way to round out uh, the year for the Brewers beyond, of course, what happens in the playoffs. So certainly something that we will continue to monitor and take a look at. Uh, David, final thoughts here or final topics that we have here before we get out of uh, today's podcast. Yeah, I just want to take a quick look around the league as far as the standings go. Uh, many of the divisional races either already locked up or close to being locked up. The White Sox have clinched their division. Tampa Bay Rays have clinched their division in the AL East. And the Brewers, of course, having clinched the NL Central now. The other ones that are still up for grabs, technically the AL West, but Houston is up five games on, believe it or not, Seattle, who was in second place, sitting at 86 and 70. Uh, Seattle is still a couple games out of the wild card, but definitely right in it still. Um, and those, that's going to be an interesting race to watch over the last week. I'd say the two biggest are the AL wildcard and the NL West uh, divisional race, which features the Giants and the Dodgers. Giants sitting two games ahead of the Dodgers right now. And of course, with that game coming, uh, the wildcard game being a, a one game plan to determine the fate of a team season, uh, it's going to be very, very important for one of those teams uh, to really try to win the division. Um, and, and whoever does win the division is at a huge advantage compared to uh, the consolation prize of a one-game play-in against the Red Hot Cardinals. The AL wild card is interesting partly because it involves uh, the Red Sox and Yankees. Yankees actually were going in two games behind the Red Sox, had a three-game set in Boston, and took all three from them. So pretty big development uh, over in Boston, certainly not uh, the outcome that Boston was hoping for. Now the Yankees are in the first place wild card spot up a game. Boston sitting in the second place wild card spot with Toronto just a game behind. Uh, I'm personally rooting for Toronto to make it. Toronto and Seattle, uh, but I don't think Seattle's going to make it, unfortunately. But we've been saying that all year. Yeah, uh, like you said, Blue Jays, Mariners. Mariners two games back and the Blue Jays just a game. That would be a, a pretty crazy twist in the last week for Blue Jays and the Mariners to overtake the Red Sox and Yankees. Highly unlikely at this point, but that would be pretty crazy. And uh, certainly, definitely rooting for Blue Jays and the Mariners. I, I'd love to see either of those teams, but the Blue Jays, the more likely one, um, I think would be, just be fun to see some of that young talent be able to get some experience in October. And we haven't seen the Blue Jays in the playoffs in a, little, in a little bit either since the uh, Jose Bautista bat flip era. 
um, that sort of ushered in, I think, in a way, a new wave of baseball. So like you said, I think it'll be interesting to see the AL wild card, how that shapes out. And then the big one that I, I think will be very intriguing is the NL West. Of course, Giants have been holding on to that lead um, and outstanding year from both those teams. But uh, that will be a fun race to follow uh, as the season comes to a close. And it would be nice to see the Brewers crush the Dodgers divisional dreams at Dodger Stadium this upcoming weekend, uh, playing three games in L.A. following their series in St. Louis. Um, one thing also actually I forgot to notice, note is Oakland also three games behind Boston, probably not going to make it because they are a few games back, but also a big series uh, this Monday to Wednesday, I think it is, or maybe Thursday. New York Yankees play a few games at the Blue Jays in Toronto. That's going to be a huge series. Uh, Yankees on the heels of a six-game win streak. Uh, Toronto, who has arguably outplayed the Yankees this year, maybe has more talent and is really hitting its, its stride, I would say, kind of late August into September, uh, and see if they're able to overtake at least the Red Sox, but maybe the Yankees themselves. Uh, a sweep would put them one game ahead of the Yankees in the same way that the Yankees just did that and leapfrogged Boston. So that's another interesting storyline. Three AL East teams fighting uh, for the two wild card spots primarily. Uh, and I would say that's a big race along with the NL West. Those two are the biggest races across baseball. Uh, the Brewers aren't involved in any of them. So less interesting, but also less nerve wracking for all of us Brewer fans in Milwaukee. Yeah, I think we're it's it's a weird feeling to be this confident. Obviously, Brewers officially clinching it today, but to have this much of a a gap in what the Brewers were going for in the National League Central, we're not used to that. I think we're used to the the down to the wire, the game one sixty three uh, moments that we've come to know and love. I think as well as Brewers fans, but it is good this year to have a break in the right direction and have a big lead and have the ability to line up our pitching and get the, get ready for what should be a very fun postseason run for the Brewers this year. So David, any last thoughts before we end the podcast today? Yeah. One last thought I was looking over a little bit more of the Cy Young race. Scherzer of course being traded mid season to the Dodgers. And since going to LA, he has been very good seven and oh in 10 starts uh, there with the wins coming back into the equation, a 1-4-3 ERA in 63 innings. So very good for sure. But I've seen people making the comparison to the holy grail of trade deadline acquisition, CC Sabathia. And I just wanted to know that that's a lazy comparison. I know Scherzer has been good with the Dodgers, but let's not act like Scherzer has propelled his team to the postseason for the first time in, in 26 years like CC did. CC was pitching like every other day, I swear. Uh, something like that. He threw 130 innings with the Brewers in 2008 and a half year. Scherzer's thrown 63, nowhere close to that. Uh, and Scherzer's basically maintained um, the level of production that CeCe had, but in half the amount of time and pitching uh, once every five, six days, a lot less pressure. I just wanted to point out that it's kind of a lazy comparison that some people are making on Twitter. Please do not make the comparison to the great 2008 CeCe Sabathia uh, when referencing Max Scherzer, who is very good in his own right, uh, but not on the same level in this comparison. I think it, it, besides the underlying stats, the performance, the quantity, all of those things is, like you said, 28-year playoff drought. But also there's a big difference between a team that hasn't made the playoffs in a long time and able to take them from you know missing the playoffs for another year 
to making the playoffs in the wild card that year versus the Dodgers, of course, being there every year. And yes, they're battling for a division, but that's completely different than the Brewer situation, even beyond the on-field performance, like you said. Uh, but certainly has turned out well for the Dodgers in that Scherzer-Trey Turner acquisition at the deadline that um, I guess is in, was in some ways controversial based on the fact that you know the most loaded team in baseball was adding two superstars to their team. So it's worked out well for them. We'll see if they are able to come back, claw their way back, and take the NL West or if they'll be sitting a one-game playoff, like you said, against the Red Hot Cardinals. And as we all know, anything can happen in one game. So we'd love to see Cardinals knock off the Dodgers in that wild card game. So kind of covered a lot of topics today, spent a lot of time around Corbin Burns, um, taking a look at Burns versus Woodruff. I think that's a really tough question that Craig Council and the Brewers staff are going to have to make uh, as far as who's going to start game one against likely the Atlanta Braves in the National League Division Exers or Walker, uh, excuse me, Walker Bueller um, and Zach Wheeler for NL Cy Young. Brewers again clinching the National League Central for just the fourth time in franchise history. Uh, so big moment for the Brewers today. Uh, we will have you covered. Uh, we will be here much more often as the Brewers head into the playoffs. Final week of the regular season, which is really hard to believe that we've been covering it all season long, and here we are, last week of the season, exciting times as the Brewers approach the playoffs, again, likely facing off against the Atlanta Braves in the NLDS. We will see you back here again next week, and as always, go Brewers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there. And interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.